Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Now, when Dennis asked me to talk about stuff today, really, I had two responses. The first one is I wanted to do so because it's fantastic to be in a room full of people who are doing so much work to help their communities be better. The second one was that I really struggled to decide what to talk about. So I rang Dennis and we had a long conversation. Now, those of you who know Dennis, this was a very long conversation and a very detailed and interesting one. And I end up with uh, two pages of typed bullet points about what I should talk about. Dennis then refused to give me six hours to talk. Uh, so I had a bit of trouble with that. And so I thought, well, I'll go and talk to a few people in the sector I respect and see what they think I should talk about and use that. Uh, and so I ended up with three pages of uh, bullet points, which didn't really help me that much. So I thought I'd do something slightly different today than I normally do, which is I actually want to walk you through my struggle uh, rather than uh, a normal presentation that I do. And that really encompasses a few whys for me. And the first of those is embedded in this photograph. Uh, so that's me in 1970 with my grandmother, my father and my mother. Now I know what you're thinking right now. Yeah, he looks about 40. How could he have been a child in 1970? <laughs> that's not funny. That is a picture of my father uh, receiving his PhD in metallurgy in 1970. He left school in year 11 uh, because the family essentially couldn't afford for all of the kids to stay in school. He went back and did night school and did various things and ended up doing a PhD at 30 years old. Now he did that because he felt uh, there was lots of opportunities he could get for him and his family if he did those things and that was that photo was taken in England, we ended up coming out here to Australia. And he did that because he felt like England was sort of struggling a bit and he wanted us to have more opportunities. And from that moment on, I had drilled into my head by my mother and my father, but my father's a louder voice, um, my mother's more persistent, um, that those who get an opportunity have an obligation, an obligation to give something back. And I got these opportunities through the hard work my father did and my mother did. I got opportunities from a free education, uh, university. And so I try, not always successfully, but I try uh, to have that guide my work, that I try and leverage the skills and things I have and the, the opportunities I've been given to help other people uh, do something to contribute towards their community. So that's the first why, about why I'm here in the first place. So if the future is now, which was the topic that Dennis gave me, why is that important? Why is thinking about the future? Because this was the next bit I got to is, you know, I was talking to one of the students outside from Bendigo College and uh, she said futurist. I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, so it is a thing. Uh, so I thought I'd explain what futurists are just to start with because I think that's important. So... If you go and try and cross the road, I don't know which way the road is in this building, but over there or over there, not at a crossing like uh, the Beatles, but where there's no lights or crossing, 
you're actually projecting yourself into the future. You're going, I can see that vehicle, I can see a cyclist, I know how fast they're moving, I know how fast I can move, I know where I can be in five seconds' time, whatever that may be. We all have some innate capacity to do that. Now, the trouble is that that capacity was developed in an evolutionary sense thousands of years ago. We haven't really changed much for thousands of years in, in an evolutionary sense. And the threats that people faced those thousands of years ago were totally different than the problems and threats you face today. So if 5,000 years ago you heard a wrestling, a rustling, not a wrestling, if you heard a rustling in the bushes, you didn't sit down and have a strategic planning meeting. <laughs> I actually said that one day to a, a group in the not-for-profit sector and one guy put up his hand and said, we would. <laughs> um, you actually, you know, you ran away or you attacked or you formed defensive, etc. And, and if you did have a strategic planning meeting, you were probably killed. Uh, and that's why we're not very good at strategic planning to this day. <laughs> but what it meant was we became pattern recognition machines. Very efficient way of dealing with the problems faced at that time, which is if you have a threat, you need to decide what it is, you need to act, you need to do that quickly. It wasn't a contemplative process. Unfortunately, that results in things like this. Or more disturbingly, this. That is an ultrasound of a man's testicle. I'm very pleased to say that I've recovered fully. Um, no, no, but yeah, we're hardwired to recognise patterns, and one of the patterns we're hardwired to recognise is faces. And what that means is we're evolutionary. From an evolutionary perspective, we're not very good about thinking about the future in the modern context. Um, and therefore, we need systems and tools and ways of thinking about that. So I like putting up this meme from the internet because it talks a lot to me about uh, what futurists are and what they do. I get a lot of this, uh, crystal ball jokes and that sort of thing. Uh, and I've got a bit of a tip for you. If you go through customs, you know, international flight, you know, they fill out that card. If you write futurist on it, it's a really good thing to do. Because when you walk up to the customs person, they go, futurist, what's that? And then you have a conversation and talk about that. It's all very friendly. And while you're doing that, they've never searched your bags. <laughs> this is what my family thinks I do. And you know, people say, you know, the road ahead and what's the questions? So, no, they have no idea. And in fact, my partner is still surprised that people will pay to listen to me talk. Uh, she often pulls 100 bucks out at night and says, I'll give you this if you shut up. <laughs> um, there's a few people in this room who know me and would know that I've never got the $100. Um, on a more serious note, though, this is the reason I really put up that picture and talk about futurists. And it's because what we do uh, is help people put together a bit more of a picture of what the future might look like in order to create better strategy, but with that caveat that all those holes are there, the pieces will still be missing. So what I say to clients, if they come to us and say, you, know, you want a picture of what our sector or our industry will look like in a decade's time, I'll say that's a fantastic thing to do. I will only guarantee you one thing. It will be wrong. So if you get someone standing where I'm standing right now or coming to your organisation and saying, you know, I can tell you exactly what's going to happen and what you should do, you should unceremoniously throw them out the door. If, on the other hand, you, can have, you have someone who can give you a coherent story that has all the assumptions in it about what might happen, 
So you can think about that in two months or six months or 12 months' time and make up your own view about what's changed, excuse me, what's changed since, then that person is worth listening to. So that's my first uh, sort of first takeaway today, which is you know, don't listen to gurus. Actually have people there that are, that are giving you intelligent thinking about stuff, but use your own critical facilities and the critical facilities of your organisation to think about that. So I thought, okay, well, we talk about futurists and that gives people a bit of a grounding. Uh, so, you know, if, if I'm in the business of putting a few more pieces of that jigsaw puzzle together, maybe I should talk about what the world looks like. And uh, this guy is actually... I, I actually like putting this guy's picture up because I have more hair than him. Uh, that's Neil Stevenson, the science fiction writer. And he has this theory that if you drop someone from the 1930s into the 1970s, they would go, holy, what the... You know, there's jet aeroplanes when we have prop things and the skyscrapers and you know, we've gone from Model Ts to these cars and there's all this... You've got computers, there's all this sort of stuff happening. But if you took someone from the mid-1970s and dropped them into today, they would go, oh, yeah. The plane I flew in in 1971 to come to Australia is still in commercial use. Not the actual plane, well it might be, but the model is still in commercial use. Now we've got skyscrapers, cars are much improved obviously, but they still look like cars, not a different from them as Model Ts. And, but a lot of the stuff that's in this modern world has been subsumed. It's actually invisible to a casual visitor. The only thing they might notice is why are all these people wandering around looking at these glass screens? So I put together a few bits and pieces, uh, and there, there are only a few bits and pieces because of the time limits, about what's going on. Because I, I think we stand today in the midst of this amazing amount of change. Now, I was talking to a young Muslim woman last week. Uh, I say young, she's 39. I've, I've got to this age where, you know, someone in their late 30s is young. Uh, and she's a developer working with uh, a company developing all sorts of stuff around uh, application programming interfaces. And I said to her, I just wish I'd been born when you were born. She's 18 years younger than me. She goes, no, 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 no. I wish I was born 18 years you know, later than I was born. And that's because there is just so much opportunity and so much change happening. So we stand in the middle of a one in, pick a number, 200 year transformation of the energy system. Not driven by environmental issues primarily, but driven purely by economics. This stuff is happening right now because it's actually better economically. And you've got companies like this one, this is PowerLedger in WA, which is building blockchain systems for peer-to-peer -peer trading of solar energy. Now most of you heard just then, blah, 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 blah. But what that merely means is the capacity for people to take control of their own energy generation and trading of their own energy generation quite easily. And I might come back to that later on. We stand in a one in the middle, or just the beginning of the start, start of the middle. We stand in the middle of a one in a hundred year transformation of the transportation system. That is a Chevy Bolt in his electric car. But you can't really tell, you know, that, that person dropped in from the 1970s, it looks like, a, you know, one of the other cars. Sometime in the next probably seven years, we will reach the point 
where it is the same cost for any of you in this room to buy an electric car that is the same cost as a fossil fuel car, the equivalent. Not a clunky one or not one that doesn't really work properly, but one is at the same quality standards. And that vehicle will be $1,500 a year less to run. Once that happens, we'll get a change similar to what we're seeing with uh, renewable energy because who's going to buy a fossil fuel car once that actually happens? If I can give you a car that works perfectly well, it's the same price and costs you $1,500 less a year to run, I can't see many people uh, buying fossil fuel cars. And I think the future, sorry, I should go back slightly, I think that is the future, boring and suburban, rather than this. I love Elon Musk to death, um, but I think actually GM and the, the manufacturers are going to win this war rather than Tesla themselves. And beyond that, we're on the verge of driverless vehicles. Uh, sometime in the next three or four years, we'll start seeing more and more of these on our roads. It'll probably be 10 or 15 years before we see massive deployment of them, but they are going to change the transport system completely. And you're going to see unintended consequences. You're going to see changes you haven't even thought about happening yet. I'm actually writing a book on this right now, but you're going to see some things you never even thought of. There are lots of other consequences too for uh, parking and urban design and federal excise and a whole range of things, but anyway. And one of the things happening right now is uh, this is the third uh, AI-based application that has been approved by the Food and Drug Administration uh, in the last uh, eight or nine months for, as a medical application. The one before it was, is a diagnosis uh, for a retinal problem related to diabetes well, they used to, have to go, used to have to go to a specialist to get tested, as now can be done by a GP using the application. So we're seeing these massive sort of movements of power and information towards the edge, uh, including things like this. So, you know, cassava is one of the biggest uh, uh, plant crops in the world, and if you're a farmer in sub-Saharan Africa, now you've got on your, you can have on your mobile phone a system which will let you diagnose via AI health problems with that. Now, many of you may be thinking at this point, so what? Um, a couple of examples, but I think a so what question is actually fairly apt. So if you think about those uh, driverless vehicles, they're a little way away, but there are things which will be happening in the next three or four years. We've calculated that one of those as a transport, a, a, an actual transport service where you don't own your own car but it comes and picks you up, can get at a shared level down to seven cents a kilometre. And that's a commercial rate. We believe a government service using those vehicles would actually get down below five cents a kilometre. If you think about that, that means that I, forgetting about tolls and things, that I could get from here to the airport for about 80 cents compared to taxis currently $45 or something like that. There's two aspects to that. One is all the employees inside your organisations will have much lower transport costs, which is fantastic because it means that their dollars will go a little bit further. But also it means that people who previously couldn't have afforded to have personalised flexible transport will be able to access that. 
And there are a whole lot of models that might come from that. If I go back to my blah, 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 peer-to-peer uh, -peer blockchain, blockchain technology, that gives you the capacity to actually own, either as a community or an individual, part of a solar operation somewhere else in the world, let alone on your own property itself. So you could see businesses saying, we'll donate our roof for that to happen. So people who are in rental accommodation who previously couldn't get those things will be able to own those things or get some benefit from them. So that's just a couple of examples. But when I was sort of thinking about this, I think, you know, I could stand up here and go bang, 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 bang and, and give you 15 more. But in the end, you'll walk out of here in two months' time, you won't really have uh, gained anything. It might have been entertaining and it might have been uh, some of you in the room might go, oh, yeah, I can use that or that particular idea. And I've seen this a lot around the sort of people, you know, like, oh, I do these presentations, where people get up and do this amazing thing and people are entertained, there's videos and there's things flying and there's all this technology and there's all this stuff happening. But then people walk out and a month later they haven't done anything. So I was reminded of this video which we're hoping is going to run. We have some technical problems with this, but I'll see whether it does. <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying. Uh, how old are you? 38. 39. Yeah. You all come off here about the same age, same problems. Spend about 50 weeks a year getting knots in your rope, and then, and then you think two weeks up here will time for you. None of you get it. Do you know what the secret of life is? No, what? This. Your finger? One thing. Just one thing. You stick to that and everything else don't mean shit. That's great, but what's the one thing? That's what you gotta figure out. I love Jack Palance. Um, so, I went, okay... What is the one thing? I, I did a master's degree from 2000 to 2003. I've been doing this work for another 15 years. So if I could think of the one thing of 18 years that I could condense all of that down for you, that you could take away. Because when I spoke to Dennis, one of those things in those notes is people come here, they work really hard. It's a hard slog in this sector a lot of the time. And they come here to be rejuvenated, to be inspired, or to get something they can take home and do something with. So I thought, what's the one thing I could condense down for you guys? And to me, that was the capacity for you to take all that stuff and make some more sense of it. Because even me doing this every week of every year in my work, I still get overwhelmed by how much stuff is actually happening out there and the change that is coming in the world that will impact on you guys. And I pick one thing, and there's two reasons why I pick this one thing. That is because it is the best thing that I've seen in that time, in all the time that I've worked in this area, to understand the strategic landscape of what might happen and then change, turn that into something you can use. And... The second reason is it is completely open source. So it takes a bit of work, and you'll see that in a minute because I'm going to hurt some brains in a minute, but you can access it completely online for free inside your organisations if you like it. 
And what it does is answer that question about how do you eat an elephant? That's one bite at a time, right? So you, know, you can have all this stuff, blockchain and bitcoins and solar and robots and automation and future of work and blah, 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 blah. Uh, and if you can break some of those up into its component parts in a way that makes sense, you can understand that landscape, you can have conversations in your sector and in your organisation that make sense, put you on the same uh, communication level about what you're talking about. And it's about understanding the evolutions or the patterns of change. And it's also about two whys. So the not-for-profit sector, I think, has a, you know, compared to some of the work I do around commercial organisations, is very, very good at that first why, which is the why of purpose. We know why we're here doing this stuff, we know what we're trying to do, we know who we're trying to serve. But there's a second why, which is the why of action, the why of movement. If we have limited resources and all this change is happening, then where do we put, where do we focus those limited resources today? And it looks like this. It looks very simple so far, so your brains aren't really hurt yet. That, uh, that Twitter handle, uh, Swardley down the side, that's Simon uh, Wardley who developed this system in the Leading Edge Foundation in the UK. And I say it's all out there for free. He's written a book on it, which is published on Medium for free. You can access all that stuff. And what this says, this map, is a map for understanding strategic landscape. And what it says is that every idea, every technology, every business practice, every business model goes from the left-hand side to the right-hand side. Goes from genesis or the first idea, goes to custom-built, goes to product, and then goes to a utility. Now, to make sense of that, I just want to give you an example of one which we've all got some experience with. So that is... Charles Babbage's difference engine in the Science Museum in the UK. Charles Babbage essentially designed the basic architecture for computers back in the early 19th century. So that was the idea, the genesis. And just so we don't forget, because we always do, women played a huge part in this process too. That's Ada Lovelace who programmed his analytical engine. She was actually the first ever software programmer in the world. If you then go forward to the 1970s, if we're talking about personal computers, that's Gordon French, who founded the Homebrew Computer Clubs. And what they did is they met and they made stuff and they broke stuff and they sold the stuff and they swapped parts and they built computers and they did all that sort of stuff. And that was the process that actually has given a lot of credit for the explosion of the computer industry after that. Then we get to the products phase. So, you know, a computer you buy in a box and you take it home and you... Um, you unplug it and you plug it in. Now, some of the younger people in the room won't remember this, but it used to be quite difficult to do some of that stuff. Um, just to put a printer and attach it to a computer used to be quite difficult. So, um, you know, there are different phases of that product. And lastly, you get to things like Amazon Web Services where people don't, ha don't have computers anymore. You plug in just like you plug into electricity. So who here watches Netflix? Sorry, I'll go the other way. Who doesn't watch Netflix? More than I thought. Netflix runs its business on top of Amazon Web Services. It doesn't exist and doesn't work in the world without that utility type service. And as I said, everything moves 
inexorably to the right-hand side. And when that happens, you get three effects. You get an increased ease of use. So stuff gets easier and easier to use. And the, the platform that Dennis and uh, Vanessa were talking about before is exactly that. It's a platform, a utility platform to make things, practices that have got around HR easier to use. It gets increasingly, increasingly reliable. You know, for the people who put their hands up before about Netflix, how frustrating is it now if Netflix doesn't work for three seconds? Right? <laughs> it's amazing how far we've come with some of those things. And lastly, you get a huge reduction in cost. And what that means is, you know, you're seeing the blurb for me, I'm a venture philanthropist here in Melbourne, with social venture partners investing in sort of startups that are trying to do innovative things. It means, all those things means you can build on top of those services something a lot more easily. It costs less money, it's not as hard to do, you can take more risk in that process. The money we put into that venture philanthropy goes further. Which means you can build something on top of that. If you don't have to worry about a lot of this HR stuff, you can, that, all that time and difficulty goes away, you guys can talk about building something else. And inevitably that cycle continues. So that may all sound at this stage a little academic, so let me give you a couple of demonstrations. Because uh, this model is more than that, just that evolutionary model. It's a map. Now if you think about a map, a map basically has five characteristics. It is visual, so you can see it. It is contextual, no point trying to find your way to Phillip Island with a map of Iceland. Uh, it has position. You know where stuff is. And in this map, I can't point to every single one, but the, the, left the bottom axis I've already described, the left-hand axis is about visibility to the customer or the client. So down the bottom is further away and invisible, towards the top is visible. It has an anchor, so you know, if you don't know which way north, south, east or west is, you've got a bit of a problem with a map uh, and using that map. In this case, the anchor is customers or clients. The whole map is focused on what are we trying to do for customers and clients and what are all the components look like from that. And the last one it has capacity for movement. If you can't move using a map, you've got a problem. And the difference between using this map compared to most standard business maps, which probably aren't really maps by that definition, is it gives you the answer to that question. Where should we focus our resources? So, we're all going to start a coffee shop. Bit out of focus, huh? um, We're all going to start a coffee shop. The focus is the customer. So we want, gee, that's really our focus. Um, great coffee, great cakes, location, fast service. So that's what the customer wants. We've got this great coffee machine. I've put it over in that custom built column because it's one of these Italian ones with 35 knobs and 12 gauges and five levers and only Antonio can make it work. <laughs> we've got a kitchen because, you know, we're, we want to produce our own stuff. We've custom built this thing. We've lovingly put tens of thousands of dollars in it because we're real foodies and we're doing all this sort of stuff. So you can map all of the stuff out there. Where does it sit? How visible to the customer is it? Where does it sit on that evolutionary scale? And then you can start having conversations about where will we do something different. So, you know, Antonio is the only one that can make that coffee machine work. 
why don't we get a utility coffee machine? You can get these ones now, you know, with an iPad or a tablet on the top and all the gear underneath and it comes out the spout and we don't have to worry about all this Antonio stuff. We could say we're having a lot of trouble getting reliable staff, let's put some robots in. And we've already seen that in cafes around the world, more as a gimmick at this stage, but heading towards that. And I said before that everything moves inexorably to the right, but sometimes it can go the other way. So if we sat down and said we're going to build a coffee shop, the first thing we would do would be build a power plant. Normally it wouldn't be the case, but here, if you go back to that technology I talked about before, the blockchain, the peer-to-peer -peer trading, the solar, you could actually build a power plant. You could build a power plant on that coffee shop that said, okay, we're actually going to put that up there and we're going to have trading systems with it. And there are times of the day where that solar power will actually have more output than we can use and we're going to donate that to the community. Now all of these conversations, you can start saying, well, we, don't, we want to keep the coffee machine, we don't want these robots and things because our customers really want the personal touch. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. But once you start talking about those things, you can actually have a conversation at the same level. Should we do this here? What are the effects in the map if we do that? And as I said, we could actually occasionally go back the other way where we've now got a message that says to our customers, we're completely running on renewable energy and we're donating our surplus to the community as well, so why wouldn't you use us for your local coffee shop? As I said before, we're writing a book on the future of driverless cars, so we use this all the time ourselves. There's a map of the current car system at a very high sort of strategic level. Don't worry too much about that, but you can then go down and do subcomponents, and this is a subcomponent of the energy system. Now if you think about that, the picture of that Chevy Bolt I put up before, most people drive about 300 kilometres a week. That Chevy Bolt has a range of 380 kilometres. You can charge that car once a week, or more times if you want to. You can charge it if you've got solar at home from your solar panels on your roof. If you've got solar panels on your roof and you've got um, your car's only home on the weekends, but instead of feeding your excess on at, you know one o'clock on a Saturday afternoon back in the grid, you can put it in the car. If that's the case, then all of this goes away. Why do you need petrol stations? Because no one's going to be charging at petrol stations. Petrol stations operate from impulse buying essentially. They make money mostly on the fact that you go and buy an ice cream or a soft drink or cigarettes or whatever it may be. So petrol companies are in trouble and there is a problem in the interim stages where if petrol stations aren't profitable enough, what happens when half of us have got electric cars and half haven't? You'll actually have the opposite problem we have now where you can't find anywhere to charge an electric car in five years' time, you're probably having trouble finding petrol stations <laughs> to fill your fossil fuel car with. So and what this does is allow you to have this conversation and start thinking about these things and talking about them in a way that says, that's what the future looks like, what could that mean for us? And lastly, as I said about this driverless car stuff, it's moving towards what we call transport as a service. So we did an exercise a few weeks ago with the Taxi Services Commission in Melbourne and you know, they've been kicked around a fair bit for the last few years. 
taxi license holders and customers and all that sort of stuff. Who saw that social media stuff where the taxi guys decided to have that, you know, tell us your taxi story on Twitter? Don't know who approved that, but go and read it. It's, uh, it's not very helpful reading. Um, but if we get to transport as a service before, I say, you won't own your car, a car will come and pick you up. And if you think about that, we have, this is from GM, we have a peak transport need in the morning, we have a peak transport need in the afternoon, so there's a, the lull in between where cars aren't used as much. So we challenged uh, various groups of the Taxi Service Commission to come up with an idea of a business model that they could build on top of that graph. And this is what one of them did. So this is a service that we would supply to customers that would give them cheap, convenient transport to shopping. It would tender out from a tendering application to the driverless car companies because if we get to the stage of having enough cars supplying transport that we don't own them, there'll probably be four or five major companies with two or three hundred thousand vehicles each uh, that will come pick you up and take you to wherever you are. We built into it advertising systems because if you are a, a shop owner, say at High Point, which is up the road here, then it's much more value if I know you come and actually enter my store and maybe I'm willing to pay for your transport to High Point if you just enter my store. Because a thousand people seeing my ad versus one person walking my store makes a lot of difference. And so you can then start having this conversation about which parts of that model should we be, be in, what's going to change, what other things are going to change, what can we build on top of that, what opportunities are there for the not-for-profit sector. So, in the future is now, I have three things to leave you with. That isn't one of them. Um, Listen to futurists or people that talk about the future, but always remember about those holes. Throw them out if they can't tell you all the assumptions which go with it. That world, I could have stood here and talked about 400 other things, is going to keep rushing at you tremendously hard. So I'd like you to think about one thing when you go back to your organisations, and that is, how do I better understand the strategic landscape in which I'm going to play? and these things that are going to affect me. That's the best model I've ever seen to do that, and we use it all the time. You may find other things, but the key thing is how do you find that strategic landscape? Understand that so you can have conversations and understand the technology, demographic, environmental changes that are coming so you can build better organisations that will do more for the communities you're trying to work in. And if 50 of you go away and do that, and uh, email me or Twitter me in six months' time that you've done something different from what I've said today, that is the only thing that will make me happy from today, that you've actually done something from what I've said rather than me give you some entertaining or slick presentation. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the Communities in Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes Store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities in Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au.